This week on Occasionally Interesting, Dr. Prash and Jen and I explore the mind and the systems that have created the way that we perceive it and the world around us, including cryptocurrency, psychedelics, ketamine. What's the difference between the two? Listen and find out. Find out where all of these and more converge in ways that we never thought possible and you probably haven't thought of either. Um, Dr. Prash is an awesome guest. We are so excited to have him on. Trevor, in particular, has been gushing ever since we had this conversation. It's true. I think it is uh, more in line with how I generally would uh, think of a podcast in terms of just like more nerdy facts and, and, and stuff and less less... Less your podcasty stuff. Is that? I don't know. I don't sense? really know how to, how to respond to that. No. I, I guess. Uh, are you happy with um, going forward that this podcast in general will be kind of striking the balance between the two? That like, yes, will uh, sometimes we'll be exploring the inner workings of people's minds and hearts, and I feel like we definitely still did that in this episode, yeah. and and sometimes we'll be more aligned with nerdy facts and experts in their field. Absolutely. I think the convergence of you and I as people and with our taste in podcasts is going to make for a fucking awesome podcast. A potent combination. A potent combination indeed. Um, anyway, so we really enjoyed speaking with Dr. Prash. He is um, an one of the leading researchers uh, in Australia on psychedelics and psychiatry and where they converge. And more recently, his professional endeavors have led him to being the CEO of a cryptocurrency brokerage. And in this podcast, we explore how shockingly these things are all aligned. Um, it was, I never thought of cryptocurrency or psychedelics as having anything to do with each other and we really get into the ways in which they intersect and um, even kind of lean on each other that we do yes um, I think the idea of seeing beyond the system that you're in and how psychedelics allow you to take this objective perspective about the world around you and then you can analyze the systems that you're submerged in normally too much so to even see that they exist and in order to sort of fathom the possibilities of cryptocurrency you need that sort of objective perspective to see the possibilities of a system that could be different than big finance wall street banks as we know it the possibilities are just so far reaching it's hard to even imagine being so submerged in that system, what it would look like if cryptocurrency and blockchain and all those new technologies were to take hold in a real way. Uh, I hope that we get a lot of new listeners of a different variety than uh, the average person we would attract with all of this information on cryptocurrency. Uh, it's definitely, it seems like somewhat of a divergence from perhaps what our normal topics seem to be, but Again, I think this episode reveals that it's really not and that cryptocurrency can and should be much more accessible to everyone. It's not just for the tech And I think nerd. Dr. Prash 
who has a speaking background, and I think that really shines through with uh, his ability to break down cryptocurrency in a way. If you're not familiar with the terms, that will hopefully be digestible for yeah. you, so that you stay can... tuned. I think, yeah, yes. definitely, he breaks it down really well. Absolutely, um, and go to his website and check him out on YouTube. There's a lot of information that he is a wealth of knowledge, a spring of knowledge in this. <laughs> desert <laughs> i don't know and listen to this podcast to learn much more about him absolutely anyway all right uh here comes the podcast theme song bum, 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 bum. that was it <laughs> occasionally interesting occasionally interesting they are occasionally interesting. So, you you guys you guys live in your base based in Thailand? Yes. Um, right. For the in Pai, uh, which is a, a tiny town a couple hours north of Chiang Mai. Right. Okay. Have you ever been to no, this area? No, well, the Thailand I have, um, but not to not to the north. Ah, I'd highly yeah. recommend it. It's uh, way way less intense than the south from what we hear. <laughs> yes, yes intense would be yeah, my experience of the south. Yeah, yeah. Mm. lots of uh, temples. I think I think the north definitely has the better food, and uh, uh. yeah, we live in the mountains. In a very nice little hippie town, um, right. where actually I think you would really love. Maybe I shouldn't be putting this out there to the public, but whatever. Everyone in Pi knows uh, half the reason to come to Pi is because they serve uh, mushroom shakes at all the bars. It's like really healthy smoothies that just incorporate psychedelic really? mushrooms. Yeah, and this is just uh, a, a a good handful of the bars um, all around town. Where, where where is this? Pi. It's. P-A-I, yeah, it's a tiny yeah. Uh, town, um, but yeah, yeah, and like everybody does their different take on it, and there's a lot of different, because yeah. um, uh, there's also a lot of focus on organic food and farming in this area, and attention to health, like a lot of people, you know, making their own kombucha and things like that, and uh, uh-huh. yeah, people trying to figure out what's the absolute best possible way to do a mushroom shake and there's ones that are like uh you know beetroot and ginger to try to like really aid in digestion and the whole process and it's interesting to see how people have their different takes on it so yeah you should come visit (laughs) Uh, it's a good sell yeah good sell all right um so today we have dr crash on the show uh i am super fascinated by your seemingly diverse specialties and how they overlap I think it's a bummer that many people seem to be under the impression that you can only be an expert in one topic, but you're out there proving them wrong as you're excelling in and informing people about the fields of psychiatry, psychedelics, and cryptocurrency. We're so excited to talk to you about these subjects and more. Welcome to Occasionally Interesting. Welcome. Thank you, Jen. Um, that's a very nice word. I, just, just thinking about that, I think the idea of um, a polymath or polymathy um, is a term that we're hearing a lot more now, but it didn't used to be that way. Um, if you think back in history, people just did a lot of everything. Your scientists were also your artists, were also your poets, were also your thinkers. And um, that sort of changed. We've gotten really over-specialized and narrowed our interests significantly. And there's 
depth, but um, it does seem a shame when we lose that breath. Yeah, it absolutely seems a shame. And I'm sure as we're going to learn from you in more detail today, like no matter how different one subject might seem from another, every subject seems to inform another, even if it's in an unexpected way and just how it uh, helps you to grow and, and widen your perspective or understanding that can be applied to almost everything. So I hear it a lot in the, the medical field as well. Like a lot of doctors, especially the general practitioners, complain that we have too much specialization, that there's not enough people who have an overview of the larger picture and how the systems all work together. And if you're talking to a, an orthopedic surgeon, that's all they know, and they're quick to put you into surgery for that rather than dabbling into the other areas because they're so specialized. It's a it's a it's an interesting point, it's a delicate point as well. Uh, on one hand, yeah, you're absolutely right. Forget orthopedic surgeons as now knee surgeons or ankle surgeons or I just do elbows. Um, and I'm not making that up. I've heard that before. I just do elbows. And that's the <laughs> level of specialization we've got to. Um, to an extent, there's some sort of sense in that, and that if I if I wanted to get my elbow done, I wanted I'd like to go to someone who's who just specializes in elbows. Not someone who's done a couple of eyes, a few knees, and um, you know, and, uh, some hearts here and there. But at the same time, it, it, yeah, you lose a complete breadth of a human as an individual. And the fact that the elbow fits into a larger scheme of a body um, and a community and a society, um, and that does get lost. And I, I don't think any of us really have the answer of where that balance should lie. Um, but uh, if to not be mindful of it, of it, or rather to be content. Um, with ignoring it completely, that's what seems more of a crime. So what do you say when people ask you the typical small talk question of, so what do you do? <laughs> um, uh, I struggle with that one. I usually start with it's complicated. Um, it sounds like a, like a, like a Facebook relationship question. <laughs> um, and that's, yeah, it usually starts with it's complicated. I, I, I struggle to know how to define myself anymore. I try not to as far as possible. Um, but, and half the reason for that is sort of exposing what I do leads to inevitably uh, just a wave of questions, which sometimes are driven by curiosity and sometimes, are, you know, I'm involved in, in, in areas which are uh, controversial. Um, in many ways and um, can be polarizing, can put people offside or can get people to sort of pigeonhole you right away. Um, and yeah, that's tricky. It's always a tricky conversation. Definitely. I mean, I feel like it's kind of a tricky conversation, even if you're not involved in controversial things and that maybe that question being so prolific is part of what makes us not be uh, more diverse in our interests because we're all summing up ourselves as who we are is by mm -hmm. what do you do? And that's supposed to be a fairly short answer. Labels, labels make things, yeah, they truncate things and uh, make it, make it easy for us to put people in these boxes that we want to put them in. Uh, and we fall into that trap with ourselves as well. Um, unfortunately. Very anyway. well said. <laughs> Um, so what does the Venn diagram of the three, I think, main subjects that you specialize in, psychiatry, psychedelics, and cryptocurrency, what does that Venn diagram look like? Uh, and how are they, how are these subjects dispersed throughout an average work day or work week for you? Sure. Um, so my, my background is as a medical doctor, um, and I've trained as a psychiatrist. 
uh, and I've been working in hospital, in public hospital psychiatry for the last, uh, better part of the last decade. Um, I, I don't work all that much in, in public hospital work as much anymore, basically main, mainly due to, um, the yeah, sort of other, um, contingencies of my time. Uh, mostly I work in clinical trials. Um, the, the main trial I'm working on right now is, uh, using ketamine for treatment resistant depression. Um, and that's, that's the bulk of my sort of more medical work. Um, outside of that though, and my main, interest my main research interest is in psychedelics and the use of psychedelics in psychotherapy um, it's been a long-term interest it's the interest that got me into psychiatry in the first place um, when i first started off as a doctor um, i had surgical aspirations I was applying for surgical training programs and um, and then maybe controversially psychedelics uh, changed my view of the world entirely they changed my view of the mind entirely and all of a sudden the body, and surgeons will hate me for saying this, but the body didn't interest me quite as much anymore. And um, I didn't want to operate on the body as much if I could operate on the mind, uh, to use a very sort of crude terminology. No, that sounds, um, that's and, amazing. And that's what drew me into psychiatry. And um, my entire time in psychiatry, my focus or my end game has always been to develop a, a practice within psychedelic psychiatry to to push that forward from an advocacy angle, from a regulation angle, from a policy angle, towards an end game of eventually being able to work in that from a, from a clinical angle for the rest of my life. Um, and we can talk about work later, perhaps because there are a few interesting developments at the moment, but where that stands right now. Um, but the third part of that Venn diagram that you talked about is that, yeah, two years ago, I started um, a cryptocurrency brokerage, <laughs> which is uh, a significant departure from any of my past training, um, which is another story in itself. But uh, uh, as it stands, um, I'm the CEO of Caleb and Brown, uh, which is um, a cryptocurrency brokerage based in Melbourne, um, and I'm proud to say one of Australia's largest uh, brokerages and probably the only ones doing it in the model that we do. Uh, and that takes up the largest percentage of my time at the moment. And it's, uh, yeah, it is a constant juggle balancing all of these competing priorities. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, well, let's go back to those first two. Um, can you give us mm -hmm. an overview of how psychedelics and, uh, and pathogens have had success at dealing with mental illness? Yeah. So the, the first thing to understand, I guess, is that this is not something new. Um, that research into psychedelics and particularly the use in psychotherapy was rife in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. In fact, between 1950 and 1970, the US government themselves funded about just under 120 different trials. Um, these were trials with US government approval. And then in 1970, Richard Nixon signed the Controlled Substances Act, relegated psychedelics to being Schedule A substances, and all of a sudden, all of this research stopped. Um, and you have this large gap of about 40 years where nothing happened, or about 35 years where absolutely nothing happened, which is criminal um, to shut down that wave in the way it was. In the last 15 years or so, uh, we've seen a resurgence um, in that research. It started with um, Roland Griffiths and his team uh, back in the early 2000s. And in the last five years or so, we've definitely seen um, that psychedelic renaissance really coming to the fore. Um, when you're starting to see um, articles on Facebook come up on a weekly basis, that's usually a good sign. 
uh, when your Uber driver's talking about uh, psychedelic therapy, that's, uh, that's another sign that <laughs> it's, it's really coming into um, the, the horizon of the mainstream. Yeah. And that's got to do with the fact that, yes, there's a lot more of these trials that are getting approved around the world. And um, the, the, the trials that have really gotten, uh, they're really at the forefront of this, I think, are the MDMA trials. Uh, and particularly MDMA for PTSD. So MDMA isn't a typical psychedelic. Uh, it's more of an empath. It's an empathogen and comes also considered a psychedelic-esque substance. Um, again, when we use the word empathogen, you're talking about a substance, this substance that has a capacity to, I guess, induce feelings of, well, empathy is oneness with your fellow man, um, a sense of love for all that's around you. Um, and that's the, the sort of drug subcategory that MDMA falls into. And that's, remarkable evidence um, with PTSD. It started with the Mithoffers um, at the University of uh, South Carolina working with turned veterans from uh, the Vietnam War um, and they found incredible um, uh, results from those initial trials. Uh, MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Science, which is based in San Francisco, uh, led by Rick Dublin, uh, really took up that mantle. They've been one of the main proponents around the world supporting, funding, advocating for psychedelic research. And the PTSD trials are something that they've really pushed uh, pretty hard. Um, they've done everything from crowdfunding uh, for, to, 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 to accumulate the, um, the funds necessary to get these trials off the ground, uh, to um, advocating for this, to writing the protocols. And now that we've seen that expand from beyond just the, uh, the you know, USC to there are various MDMA trials happening in various parts of the states, in the UK, in Canada, um, I think in, there's a center in Israel as well. Um, but some of the other substances that are quite interesting are the use of psilocybin. Uh, so psilocybin, which is the active ingredient for magic mushrooms. Um, so the use of psilocybin in end-of-life terminal anxiety uh, at the University of New York. Um, and at the uh, Johns Hopkins are two of the main centers uh, running these trials into end-of-life terminal anxiety. Carhart Harris and his group in Imperial College London um, are running trials on psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression, and all of these trials are showing um, very good results, uh, even at relatively early stages or small sample sizes. Um, and along with that, there are various trials sort of scattered around the world with um, for example, I'm just throwing you some examples here, LSD um, being used for the treatment of addiction, LSD being used for the treatment of treatment-resistant depression, um, and then very much so more in Central and South America and in some some centers in North America as well, um, the use of ayahuasca, um, which, or which the active ingredient is DMT, um, to be used for addiction trials. And ayahuasca is... Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a it's a brew that's been used in religious sacrament um, in Central American and South American um, cultures for well about as long as there has been religious sacrament, I suppose, um, and to see it starting to be used in more mainstream settings for therapeutic purposes is pretty fascinating. Um, so that's sort of a sorry, I've just brain dumped on you, but that's no, a that sort of great. snapshot of the kind of research that's happening around the world. I haven't mentioned Australia yet, but that's sort of the global scene, um, roughly speaking. You mentioned that you are currently working on clinical trials with ketamine, mm -hmm. which, from my understanding, has shown pretty significant uh, positive impacts on severe depression. 
Correct. Yes, it has. Yeah, and that's the trial that I'm working on here. Um, now, ketamine isn't a psychedelic in the in the traditional sense. It's a it's a dissociative, um, and yes, that 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 may just come down to a technicality for a lot of people. But if you're actually working in this space, it's a quite significant difference. Um, in the and particularly, what's different is the modality in which it works. With psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, it's and this is to correct a major misconception that occurs sometimes. It's not the substance itself. It's not the LSD. It's not the psilocybin that's causing any sort of biochemical or um, neuroscientific or neuroanatomical changes um, that cause the uh, resultant effect. It's the psychotherapy that happens while under the influence of the psychedelic. It's the lessons learned from the sort of transcendental experience and it's the integration after um, and integrating that into life in the future. Um, so it's very much based on the psychotherapeutic encounter, whereas with ketamine and the way ketamine has been used, it's it's got nothing or very little to do with the psychotherapy uh, at all. Um, but the ketamine itself um, seems to have some sort of direct effect um, on uh, whether that's brain biochemistry, um, uh, neuroreceptors, uh, neurotransmitters. Um, but it does seem to have this effect on helping to alleviate depression in people in whom various other therapies have failed. It's not a long-lasting effect. They usually need uh, repeat dosing, um, but that's okay when you're talking about people who have been suffering for so long, and if it helps them get out of get out of that deep pit to an extent where they can do other things to help improve their lives, they can get themselves to psychotherapy, they can, that gives them enough for reprieve such that conventional therapies may then start to be able to take effect. Um, it's still... Um, definitely a very a worthwhile cause to be to be pushed forward, and that's sort of the primary difference between um, the use of ketamine for depression versus other psychedelics. And what is your ideal world for how psychedelics would be used in conjunction with therapy? Well, oh, right. Uh, this is a, this is a big one. Um, I have, I guess, very grand visions and. Uh, I have to I have to be aware that beware that I don't come across sounding like a like an absolute hippie um, stuck in a cave in well, Rishikesh. I think anybody listening to this podcast will totally uh, respect you sounding like an absolute hippie, <laughs> especially a very well informed absolute hippie. Well informed absolute hippie. Good. Yeah. All right. Um, I guess my my greater dream is of a much more psychedelic world. Um, and that's not sort of Joseph's amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat type of you know landscapes. Rather, um, what I'm what I'm getting at is that I I do envision a world where we engage with psychedelics on a much more regular basis, um, on almost a day to day basis, and where they are much more incorporated into our way of life, um, where they're not just these things that are these mystical objects that we use every now and then. Um, and then they sort of disappear uh, into the distance, and rather they're something that we engage with constantly. You know, uh, uh, Hoffman, Albert Hoffman, who first synthesized um, LSD back in 1943, he often spoke of um, psychedelics as, and well, LSD in particular, as as its main potential, not necessarily being for the big sort of trip-sized doses, um, but in in term that we we now call it microdosing. Um, but that's what, where he saw its main promise, it being used as a tonic in a way, it being used um, more regularly in smaller doses and just being inculcated into our lives. And it's unlike other substances or other drugs, 
uh, it's much more possible because with, with psychedelics, you psychedelics don't have the addiction potential that other drugs do. They don't have the overdose potential that other drugs do. And the way the tolerance mechanism works, um, you're able to inculcate them daily without necessarily building up tolerance in the same way that you would with, say, alcohol or nicotine or um, you know any other recreational drug that we conventionally talk about. Um, I think of, I imagine a world where, um, and we haven't entered the microdosing conversation yet, where um, people use psychedelics to... Um, modulate their experience of the world, um, to modulate their cognitive sort of profile, um, as in, well, as much as they may want to. Um, and there's often a very all or nothing construct of which people view psychedelics. Um, but we don't do that with other drugs, right? No one, no one talks about having a scotch and then going out there and drinking an entire bottle of scotch. We don't. We have a glass or two glasses or five if you so want to. Why can't you do exactly the same thing? With psychedelics, so the idea of having, let's say, if you consider a trip dose to be 100 micrograms of um, of LSD, um, and a microdose to be roughly seven to ten micrograms, if you ask someone who is microdosing on a regular basis, and then on particular days when you perhaps are involved in activity that requires more creativity, or where you want to tap into your creative side. Um, where let's say you're not going to be driving, but you're not going to be uh, operating heavy machinery, uh, you're not exactly juggling kids, but you're going to be sitting in your study and engaging in creative endeavor, then you can push that to say having 20 micrograms um, and use that rather than abuse it, to use it um, in a constructive manner to achieve um, the world, that, well, yeah, the kind of worldview that you want um, for that day or for that time. And then extending that further, um, on using the much larger doses in a particular uh, intention-driven and guided manner with a trained therapist um, every now and then, every so often, to tap into your subconscious on a much deeper level to gain a better understanding of oneself, to gain greater in introspection. Um, that's sort of the, the way I, I envision um, the psychedelic world in the future. Um, but I think that's a very, very long way off. And um, when this is sort of thrown out anecdotally um it could be it could be a vision that could scare a lot of people if it uh, if you know if i don't have the opportunity to sort of explain it in greater detail sounds like i'm trying to put it in the water or something well i think that is a great segue into the microdosing conversation you, you mm. hear about silicon valley and how there's an increasing number of ceos that have admitted publicly that they you know very influential people are admitting to microdosing on lsd and how it's contributed to their creative creativity, unblocking of particular concepts. There's a, a popular one from, I'm sure that you've heard about with biology and, and DNA replicated uh, PCR. Was it that what is it created yep. by an acid trip? Uh, for Francis, Francis Crick and the structure of the DNA double helix. So what, what do you, how, you say it's sort of a long way off, but it seems like there's an underlying current that's already happening with... It's yeah, it, it's happening in very select communities. Um, in fact, so this is quite interesting. The the Australian Financial Review, which is the um, probably the most prominent sort of business times uh, newspaper in, in Australia, um, published an article recently where I was quite prominently featured. And as a business, as a brokerage, we've always wanted to get into the AFR um, and the, well, we did get into the, oh, I did get into the AFR, 
and quite prominently so, but it w wasn't necessarily for the brokerage. It was a two-page spread on microdosing in corporate culture, um, which was fascinating, but also hilarious. So that was my sort of back route into, into the AFR. Um, and, and in that article, I think I spoke a couple of times of how um, I'm getting a sense that what cocaine was to Wall Street, um, in a lot of ways, I'm starting to get a sense of uh, microdosing becoming more to Silicon Valley, uh, more to the fintech community, except with none of the adverse effects necessarily that that um, that whole cocaine wave brought with brought with it. Um, so it's it's definitely select communities, the tech community, the creative community, um, the art of the artistic community um, who are taking it on board, but the mainstream uh, is still very very far away from from really taking that on. That, that's sort of what I meant about it being quite distant and quite far away. And importantly, the, the medical community um, is certainly still very far away from, from embracing this, which is disappointing. But, um, but yeah, so particular, particular subsets um, are definitely taking it on. And in a way, that's not a bad thing. I guess they have to start from somewhere. And the tech community, the fintech community are very much going to be if not necessarily the thought leaders, but definitely the financial leaders, I think, of tomorrow, the the leaders of innovation of tomorrow, um, the leaders of industry of tomorrow, most industry is going to be very tech-driven, whether we like it or not. That's the way the world is changing. And if that wave is being fueled or are taking on um, microdosing and that sort of psychedelic paradigm, um, then that does still fill me with a lot of confidence in terms of the kind of world that, that they're going to be creating um, and that that's the kind of world that I'm very happy to be much more a part of than necessarily one that was one that was fueled by Wall Street and cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It'll be interesting to see how those two influences shape the future. You see, like, mm. I like to think about it sort of difference. like when we moved from drinking beer in the morning to coffee in the or tea in the morning, how that transformed our society. We're going to see a similar shift from cocaine-fueled Wall Street to tech-fueled yeah. acid-driven one of the big differences there in the way I see it, and I don't want to reduce substances to uh, to very sort of directional integers I'm just about to do, but um, there are a lot we use we're all drug users. Right? I, I teach medical students um, at Monash University and I run the six six lecture series on drugs and, and the first thing I started off with every single time is this acknowledgement that we're all drug users. Um, you know, they all sit, they're all sitting there with their cups of coffee in the morning, and you have to point out that we're all drug users. Some of us will become drug abusers, and another small proportion will become drug addicts. But we're all drug users. We just need to consider what these drugs are that we use. And for the most part, the drugs we use are very two-dimensional drugs. They're very it's very upper and downer type phenomenon, right? We have a coffee in the morning, uh, we have a glass of wine at night, and we'll just go up and we'll go down. And it was a similar thing, I guess, with, with cocaine and Wall Street. It was a, a stimulant, and it very much drove it very much upwards. It was on a very two-dimensional axis. Whereas psychedelics for me, and this may be an abstraction, but it's a much more three-dimensional enhancement or four-dimensional or nine-dimensional. I mean, it really, you're, you're limited only by the imagination there of what possible dimensions could be. And that's where I see a lot of the promise in terms of the potential enhancement, because you're not limited by this one, one, this, yeah, this limited, but, but limited dimensions. You've got, um, so many more angles in which you could explore it or which it could be utilized. Um, and that's exciting. I think I made a dimensional joke when you said 
we have begun we haven't begun to explore the potential of the potential of the mind <laughs> it's like fifth dimensional <laughs> thinking out there yeah. i like yeah, it yeah. i like it well that's yeah i mean that's that's the that's the whole point with this it's not uh there's a the there's this concept of cognitive liberty um which is very much uh, a big soapbox of mine the which is not not the idea that we should be able to think whatever we can think but that we should be able to think to the extent of the potential limits of what we could potentially think and we should we should have the freedom to explore just how much we can explore um and and that's that's what often gets restrained by things like the war on drugs things like legislation that's what clamping down on psychedelics did to us um it limited the potential of our potential um but anyway that's that's not abstract that much do we have any any better understanding of the methods of action of any of these substances uh i will very firmly say absolutely not um unfortunately so we we understand different mechanisms um in we we can we can ex- we can we can draw some explanations from a sort of neuroscientific um uh angle um robin cart harris again and co uh, david nutt at imperial college london have done some of the big fmri studies um into what the brain state looks like uh, under the influence of different psychedelics um and we can derive some correlations from there um we know that most psychedelics work on serotonin um the 5HT2A receptor in the brain uh and so from a biochemical pathway and neurotransmitter pathway um we can draw, derive some correlations there um we there, so there's a lot of association that we've established but we have not been able to prove causality in any way we can we can see that it has effects on these pathways but how that relates to the kind of transcendental experience that is then produced um we really have absolutely no idea um and all that goes to show goes to show two things one um firstly how little we understand of the brain uh, it's it's half a statement of how little we understand about psychedelics but i think more of an indictment on how little we understand of the brain um and two and this is where it gets a uh, uh, a little less concrete um that this idea of a separation or the a need for uh, a separation between brain and mind um and guess uh that 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 dualist separation is something that is not that clear um uh they i i firmly believe in that separation between the brain and the mind that the mind is a um a far more vague um construct and we have no evidence for the anatomical locus of the mind um we've sort of colloquially always thought of it as the brain we sort of point to your head when you think of the mind um but we've got no evidence of that and it, aren't we having hearing more and more research about the the potential for the mind to be located in the gi tract the gut uh again yeah again potential associations and the serotonin hypothesis is what's driving a lot of that but um i i would be i'd be tempted to shy away from the idea of giving and you know, providing an anatomical locus to the mind at all um it, this it leads to far deeper questions and conversations about consciousness um and whether the brain is just a sort of portal tapping into um tapping into the sort of conscious stream or the the conscious soup that we're all swimming in the that is jungian theories of the collective unconscious that floats around and that we all sort of tapping in and out of 
starting to sound a bit like the Matrix here. But, <laughs> I was just um, say. <laughs> yeah, and if and if, if that is the case, then then the the idea of a mind is uh, is purely it's purely uh, a narcissistic sense of develop of trying to hold on to a sense of that greater collective unconscious as being one's own, um, but it not it not actually having um, any true existence within one's own physical self. Um, and again, we have no evidence for it. We only have hypotheses. And so far, they, we've been sort of bumbling along with our, with our working hypothesis of, of mind being in brain. And um, that's gotten us this far. But when you start pushing the, the limits of our understanding, these cracks start to appear, which don't add up. Um, and the psychedelics are just one of those means of pushing the limits of our understanding. Um, and yeah, we don't have ways to fill those those cracks as yet. Do we have any? Uh, I won't go there just yet. Um, <laughs> sorry. Do you have any explanation for anybody that might be experiencing muscle contractions after LSD use, particularly in the back? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not a personal <laughs> question at all. <laughs> um, from your medical uh, background. Just generally, I'm curious about the, the, we've talked a lot about the mental manifestations of psychedelic use, but I have definitely become more and more curious and lamenting the lack of research when it comes to physical, because I have so many, so many questions on the, the how psychedelics affect the physical body. You also hear, mm-hmm. like we were listening to a podcast recently that had a doctor speaking about how... Dr. Andrew Wheel. What's his name? Yeah. Um... How he, who was very fair-skinned, took LSD, was out in the sun for hours, and then never developed, uh, um, never burned his skin. Like ever again. Ever that, again. That it taught his, the pigment in his skin to behave differently after hanging out in the sun during an acid trip. And somebody who's naturally wow. very skeptical of things, that uh, you know, then he went into like sort of walking on hot coals and how your mindset can influence how, like, down to whether or not you get blisters from such an activity. Like, certain people will, and certain people won't. And it has to go down to like, like they're, and I'm a little dubious when I hear things like those, mm. but he was he was very convincing. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. Uh, the, look, the first thing is he. I mean, if you're talking about an n equals to one study, you got to question the validity of that. Firstly, um, personal anecdotal experience does not equate to a randomized controlled trial. Um, so that's that's my that would be my first point. Um, my second point is that the idea of the capacity of the mind, and this this is nothing to do with psychedelics even. The idea that the, the mind has the capacity to influence um, the way the body works um, is far more, well, it's, it's considerably more far-reaching than we often um, think it is. In fact, the separation of body and mind is entirely a man-made construct, right? Before that was, that was actually a, um, where he started from was the placebo hmm. effect and how how medicine should start to be working towards enhancing the placebo effect, yeah, yeah rather yeah, than treating absolutely. it as something different or like this non-existent thing that should be avoided or circumvented in order to gain effect. Yeah, no, no, no. We, <laughs> I, I totally believe in the placebo effect and I'm very happy to utilize it whenever possible if it works on a patient. If it works, it works. Um, you use it. And the, uh, the, the uh, we call it Cartesian dualism um, and it was Rene Descartes, 1500s, um, who 
prior to that, we worked on very monist theories, this monism, this idea of the poor body as a whole, and Cartesian dualism, which really perpetuated that separation of um, um, the, the mind-body separation as being two completely separate things. And I think that, in a lot of ways, has done us a lot of disservice because it's created that divide. You know, the fact that we have terms like psychosomatic conditions, oh, a symptom in the body that comes from an unrest within the mind. Well, that t- even that term only exists because you consider psyche and soma body to be two separate beings. If you, if you didn't have that man-made construct, then it'd just be a symptom. That's all it would be. And, and psychosomatic symptoms are something we experience all of the time, just that some of them are more normalized than others. When you experience anxiety, so a lot of us experience it as um, your heart beating really fast, sometimes feeling nauseous, sometimes sweating. Those are all psychosomatic symptoms, but we've normalized that for so long that we don't actually consider that as a separation. Uh, and in a similar way, the capacity for mind control to then be able to achieve um, uh, extraordinary states of say, thermoregulation, for example, uh, I'm definitely not unheard of. I'll give you two examples. Uh, have you heard of Wim Hof? No. The Iceman? So Wim Hof is he's Polish. Um, and he has really pushed this idea of the Wim Hof breathing technique um, and via uh, mind control, really mind control via, uh, via breath work. Um, he trains people and takes people on everything from mountain walks to um, walking into the freezing Arctic Ocean um, in the middle of the night uh, for, and staying there for an hour in, in nothing but just a pair of shorts. Um, and, and he does this, he, he, he still stays in the ice bath for an hour um, with uh, absolutely no issues at all. And he attributes it down to his mind being able to control his thermoregulation. Um, wow. And that's starting to be far less of a stretch now as we're seeing um, that spread a lot more. Uh, equivalently, if you look at, um, I mean, I can, I can relate to um, a lot of Hindu festivals, the Hindu festival called um, Taipusam. Um, where devotees carry these large, almost chariot-like things, which are planted into, well, they're carried over their heads, but it's all sort of um, scaffolded um, or rather supported by the body via these skewers, which go straight into the skin. Um, And they support these large structures which can weigh 50 to 80 kilograms. Um, And they claim to feel no pain um, because they're so strongly um, devoted and, and it's almost a very meditative state. And, and pain completely disappears. Equally, they, the, the idea of the Hindu festivals where the walking on fire, uh, walking on hot coals, um, is a very common phenomenon, and it's, it's done as a means of showing devotion. Um, but the common devotees who do this commonly speak of feeling absolutely no pain whatsoever. Um, and science doesn't really have a means of explaining that, um, but there's enough anecdotal evidence over, over centuries of people having done this just by, I mean, you can call it devotion or you can call it control of the mind, either way. Um, there's, it certainly happens. Um, and so while I can't, uh, dis- well, I can't, uh, you know, say I totally believe in the idea that you can, you can completely change your ability to, to, uh, sorry, your, 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 what is it? Your, your, your interaction with the sun, your skin's interaction with the sun, you may never tan again. Um, while I can't, discredit or credit that um, the idea that the mind can achieve changes in um, sort of bodily homeostasis is not inconceivable no well why do you think if there's this mounting amount of anecdotal evidence there hasn't been more research into 
of this phenomenon, at least not that I'm aware of? Uh, in research into a particular phenomenon or research into psychedelics in general? The relationship yeah. from the body to the mind to... Ah. Yeah, I mean, with psychedelics, without psychedelics, there yeah. seems to be this fascinating and valuable amount of, you know, n equals one is one thing, but when all those n equals mm -hmm. ones amount to... Many, Add up, yeah. yeah. Um, so two parts to this. One is the why... One part I'll get to later, which is the psychedelic research question. The the other bit, which is why isn't there been more research into... Um, the capacity of the the mind itself to um, to exert changes in body biochemistry and perhaps be used therapeutically. Well, there's no money in it, is there? Without sounding like an absolute conspiracy theorist, um, there there really isn't. And if you think of where a lot of the funding for a large part of research comes from, um, yes, it comes from universities, but a lot of it also comes. All of it's also pharma sponsored. And there's no there's no pet patterns available on the mind. Um, there's no patterns available on psychotherapy psychotherapeutic techniques. Um, and that, that that does limit the amount of research available. The, the pharma companies, and I, I'm not someone um, who likes to push the, the big pharma um, well controversy. Um, I think pharmaceutical companies do a lot of good. They're essential. They're necessary um, to get a lot of the research they want off the ground. But there's also uh, a particular direction towards this research, and it is it has to be profit-driven. They are corporations at the end of the day. They're profitable enterprises. Um, and so research that doesn't necessarily serve that need is not going to get the same amount of funding. Uh, so how do regardless. you think we change that dynamic? That that seems to be problematic all over the place, and, and we're aware yeah. that it is, but I haven't really heard a, a reasonable suggestion for an alternative method that... Uh, Mm. Well, as long as there's a centralized point of control, there's going to be a problem because you have absolute power that then can corrupt and that can, as a result, um, define the strategy, define the direction. Um, decentralization changes a lot of that. And if you we, if we see a means of decentralization of that funding, um, that will make a big difference. And... Um, philanthropy is one means of doing that. Um, that's been a hard push to get people, uh, I guess, people sort of convinced enough to fund research into things that are so sort of obtuse or vague. Um, but one sort of out there idea is that if the, and relating back to our earlier conversation, um, you know, there was a, something called the Pineapple Fund that was established by a whole bunch of cryptocurrency um, millionaires or billionaires. Um, and this is a philanthropic fund that they had established as a result of their, um, their large earnings from the last, the last big run. Um, and that they were putting it towards charitable causes. And one of the main benefactors of the Pineapple Fund was MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Science. And it that does sort of encourage me in one way is that if we are creating a new wave of thinkers, a new way, new wave of leaders and a new wave of um, financially uh, financial leaders um, who are more aligned towards principles such as this, um, if the fintech community and the tech community starts embracing microdosing um, and starts embracing psychedelic principles, perhaps um, 
then and and that's where a lot of the the money starts to be centered in the future then perhaps we might see a shift of thinking such that um these people these organizations would be more willing to fund um research and thought leadership into these avenues um that's a it's an optimistic view um <laughs> but it's something that i hold on to with I'm really hoping for um because it it, it so offers a chance that I, I don't see anyone else doing is it fair to say that cryptocurrencies may very well be the savior of psychedelic research? Psychedelic research. <laughs> um, I won't. I mean, I won't. I won't promise that. Um, but I, I see it as just being. It's one of the cogs. Um, it's one of the cogs in the in a larger wheel um, of uh, a new a new wave of a new wave of innovation. Um, that is quite different from the way it has been before. Um, a new uh, uh, a means of decentralizing power and control of everything from authority to regulation to funds um, than we've ever had before, um, which is going to cause a sort of trickle-down effect in terms of paradigm shifts um, in, 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 in general thinking, um, in, in general philosophy. Um, I see cryptocurrencies as being an ideological movement uh, a philosophical revolution in the way, same way um, that psychedelics I see as a philosophical revolution more than anything else. Um, and this is this is what I'm speaking. Next week I'm going to a conference called Anacapulco uh, in Mexico, um, and this is exactly what I'm I'm talking on. It's what my talks about uh, is on um, psychedelics and cryptocurrency as being um, ideological movements very much in tandem. Um, I see them as being philosophically aligned. To it's a very similar, sim, similar common goal, um, and one that I I see a lot of promise in. And yeah, I don't, I'm not saying cryptocurrency will be the savior, but I think it's it's part of the greater solution that the the world is going to start seeing. Well, not to sound too conspiracy theorist myself, but it seems like every time there's been a revolution, there's always been some sort of pushback. I mean, you're talking about sort of dismantling some some pretty powerful systems, both in big pharma mm -hmm. and in big bank. Finance, yeah, absolutely. They're, they're, these are both disruptive technologies at their core, and there's going to be a lot of pushback. There will be. There already, when there already is. It'll be very interesting. So what do you think are the biggest barriers to the proliferation of cryptocurrency or blockchain or any of its elements? Yeah. Um, well, the, the biggest issue is that, well, being such a disruptive technology, you're you're coming up against the most powerful um, organization in the world, which is big money. Um, the most powerful, without question. And you're, what you're proposing is a system that destabilizes um, that entire comfortable, lush, velvet bed that they've been lying on all this while. Um, it, it threatens to remove a lot of, if not all of their power. Um, it threatens... Uh, a greater distribution of global wealth. It threatens um, greater transparency within the financial system. Um, it threatens it, uh, it threatens a, a, a wave of decentralization such that no single party has that element of control that it ever has. Um, and these are huge threats. And um, you couple that with the fact that Look, we, as humans, we're, we're essentially homeostatic organisms, right? We, 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 we don't like change. We strive towards constancy and we will resist change at every step of the way. And particularly when it comes to something like money, 
every change um, in the way we have construed money has been met with resistance. Um, when we went from barter to gold, for example, the, the first guy who was promised a block of gold for his, for his herd of goats went, uh, what are you smoking? It didn't make any sense. <laughs> so it was this very strange construct. And even more so when you went from gold to fiat currency, the first guy who was given a piece of paper in exchange for his gold, would have been, he could have been mad. I'm like, what am I going to do with this? And But yet, over time, we embrace that. That is how change happens. But there's always a period of great consternation and a lot of struggle while we make that transition. But we just forget that. I mean, even as recently as the advent of credit cards, internet banking. Um, how many of you? I mean, how many of us have got parents or grandparents who won't won't trust internet banking? Yet for us, it just seems absurd that you wouldn't. <laughs> but it's only because well, that transition of money is difficult to make. That's funny. The um, next the next question we have written here is: How did credit cards gain traction? I mean, we've been recently talking about how crazy a twenty five percent interest rate is to to do something that mm-hmm. you know, especially with like you know new technologies, one of them being cryptocurrency and blockchain. Like there doesn't really seem yeah. to be a need to verify that you know somebody received money, and like you're not the, the, that system can be easily integrated. Even even PayPal, like to give three percent or four percent of my money to somebody who's doing a service that is no longer worth any of that. Exactly. It seems yeah. crazy, and these systems yeah. have been integrated. Yeah. I mean. It was just funny that that's where you went, and that this we fell into this system. And I can't believe more <laughs> question, people aren't questioning like why they're throwing away so much money to. Well, we don't we don't question it because we just get we get comfortable. Um, that's one of the main things we get comfortable, and um, every good enterprise, every good company will do everything it can to one reduce friction um, for the user, and two increase stickiness. Um, such that once you're locked in with a the system, there's so much reluctance to change because it's just too hard to change. Um, and that's what a lot of these companies have done. It, they increase the stickiness dramatically um, by once you get so comfortable with using that credit card, once you see incentives in the form of whether it's points or frequent flyer miles, there's always add additional incentives that are provided. Um, and then three, because it feeds into that consumerist culture, which... Um, has in tandem also been propagated, and this is—it's always synergistic industries that develop, and the the rise of that consumerist movement has been very much in line with a system that allows you to access that consumerist movement, even if you don't have the resources to necessarily access it. Um, you add that, couple that to perhaps um, the rise of uh, social media, where not only can you access it, but you can also then display it and. Um, put forward this, this false self far greater than your own, uh, all of these combine into a, a very dangerous mix um, that only perpetuates perpetuates those industries coming together. So it, it's, a, it's a perfect storm. And it's the way things will develop because that's what ensures their survival. So you mentioned that your cryptocurrency brokerage is yeah. unique in a particular in its method. Yes, sir. Could you speak more on that? Sure. Um, so the brokerage is called Caleb and Brown, um, and it's a dedicated cryptocurrency brokerage. And I guess what's unique about it is that it's a hark back to um, a very old model. It's a very analog model in a digital ecosystem, if you want to call it that. Um, we the model is very much akin to a 90s 1990s stockbroker model, 
where every client gets a personal broker and there's no dealing with exchanges, there's no dealing with um, you know complicated order books. You just have a personal broker, you pick up the phone, you call your broker and he organizes everything for you. Um, and your broker takes you through everything from education to setting up wallets, um, to buying, selling, um, diversifying your portfolios. There's ongoing market analysis that our analysis, uh, analyst team provides. We have an in-house accountant that does dedicated, you know, purely crypto tax um, consultancy. So it's a very much a sort of one-stop shop for all of your all of your cryptocurrency needs. And in if you're talking about an ecosystem where the rate of uptake has been slow, very much because of the huge knowledge gap. People have heard about it, but I'm like, oh, yeah, I've heard about it, but I, I don't know that much about it. Or I've heard about it, but I, I don't even know how to, to buy anything. Um, this changes that completely because you have, it's very much a white glove service of having someone who sort of talks you through the entire process, guides you through it, and is your personal broker. Now, high net worth individuals have this in the form of their financial advisors, their wealth managers, who do this for them for their traditional assets. Uh, and our goal was to bring that paradigm to even the day-to-day investor by providing them access to that same sort of resource, um, which they otherwise wouldn't have access to. And as far as we know, it, there's no one else in Australia who does that model. Um, the We went to the, the sort of stockbrokers and financial advisors association in Australia um, awarded us fintech startup of the year last year, uh, which we were very pleased with, predominantly because it came from the traditional financial services. Um, but I think all, that was solely because it, the model that we utilize, it's something that the traditional financial world has been so familiar with. Um, it, it provides a sort of trust and um, authenticity that the cryptocurrency world is sorely lacking in at the moment. Um, and that's really our... Um, one of our major major plus points it seems to me like one of the one of the the things that is going to slow down cryptocurrency is people's lack of knowledge about it lack of ability to understand what it is they're even talking about not even that it's that mm-hmm. complicated just that our schools at least in the states have been pretty pretty her- tremendously inadequate in any sort of financial uh, teachings and people just seem to not want like like they want the status quo they don't want to have to think about these things and it seems yeah. like you need to kind of have an idea of what we're talking about in order to get excited and realize how much this could benefit you correct yeah and I don't, the knowledge I don't know gap and the knowledge gap that. is huge and it's so it, it's it's also such a counterintuitive paradigm um, the whole cryptocurrency paradigm, it's, it's completely different to anything we've encountered before. Uh, it re- requires you to dismantle not just everything you know about financial systems, not just everything you know about money, but even just how you understand value. You know, that very core concept of how you think about value, uh, understanding that nothing has intrinsic value, that really value is only what someone else is willing to pay for something. That's what value is. Um, understanding that money really is just options, that currency really is, you know, that paper that you hold, all that is is a is an approximation of trust that doesn't actually have any intrinsic value in itself. All of these things are concepts that you'd never even think about. We've never had to think about because it's already been created for us. The infrastructure has been cre- around has been created around this monetary system such that you don't have to think about it because the infrastructure already exists and it's intuitive. When you start to try to dismantle all of that, 
you need to start giving, providing explanations as to why you need to dismantle all of it. And if the explanation is, oh, so that we can then insert this completely new paradigm, the immediate question is, well, why would I want to do that? And then you've got to start explaining, well, because this new pro- paradigm provides all of all of these benefits, and then um, that leads to, so it's just, it's just so many different levels of conversation that need to be had um, before you can truly appreciate the magnitude of what this could be. And uh, again, my, the similarity there between cryptocurrencies and psychedelics is that once you start talking about this, it's all it's Alice in Wonderland territory. Mm-hmm. How far do you want to go down the rabbit hole? Really, how far do you want to go down the rabbit hole? I mean, you can keep going, and and the, the deeper you go, it's it's more and more um, sort of well, head fast moments, really, to use a technical term, um, and it's impossible to have a three-minute conversation about cryptocurrencies. Impossible. I mean, I think that's really, really like a poetic symbiotic nature between cryptocurrencies and psychedelics that I, I haven't realized, even realized when we were prepping for this, that, you know, I think that psychedelics give you this ability to to acknowledge systems that you're in and then to imagine other potential systems and then their impact on the way that you experience the world in a way that, is really difficult to achieve without their help. And I think that's where we need to be in order to understand the benefit of a whole new financial system like that cryptocurrency could potentially give us. I, I like that. That's very yeah. – I like the symbiotic I mean, the, That's That's how I got into the cryptocurrency game at all. Um, I, was, I was writing a talk – uh, on, as we discussed earlier, on cognitive liberty. And it's one of those two in the morning Wikipedia stub to Wikipedia stub jumps. And I, uh, I drifted from cognitive liberty till I stumbled across this idea of fiscal liberty. Uh, never heard of that before. What's fiscal liberty? Ah, oh, the idea that you should have the freedom to spend your money however you want to spend it. Which, if you grow up in a developed sort of first world democracy, that's sort of, you, you, you think that's implicit. Until I start reading a bit more, and then you realize that the way the whole banking system and financial industry is set up, well, you sort of give your money to the bank, and you bestow upon them all of this power, uh, and then you get on your knees and kowtow before them, and are subject to the air rules about how you can spend your own money. It's like, oh, I never thought about that before. And then about three hours later, I sort of discovered, I stumbled across this, this white paper, the Bitcoin white paper by Satoshi Nakamoto, and my, I won't say my life was changed forever, but my life was changed forever <laughs> over the over the next sort of next few weeks or so as I delved more and more into this. This this was this phenomenal new world that had opened up for me, and I for me this was the future, and I absolutely needed to have my slice of that future. Um, and that's 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 the true story of how I got into cryptocurrencies in the first place. It was again it was psychedelics that took me there. Um, yeah, the that symbiotic relationship for me is uh, has always been clear, and that's something I continue to propagate uh, as I go along. That's wonderful. So we have a list of questions that we ask every guest. There. Okay. I think this is a pretty uh, natural segue into the first one, which is: uh, What is the most unrealistic thing you believe in? The most. <sighs> So that's an interesting one, isn't it? If I believe in it, is it really that unrealistic? Um, the most unrealistic thing about ah, okay, the most unrealistic thing I believe in is that um, a better world um, for all of us is one 
where psychedelics are thoroughly and completely uh, inculcated into our way of life, um, where they cease to be just these strange mystical things um, that a few people have heard of and most people have tried to something that we engage with on a regular basis um, in the way that it always used to be. Yeah, that's, that's how we've always been. It's um, a good answer. Yeah, that would be my answer for that. All right. Sounds like a beautiful world. That's where yeah. we want to live too. I just want to say one thing of like, you know, we, we've been talking about how psychedelics are, yeah, often sectioned off as a thing of of hippies. Do do you ever think of defining yourself in terms of a hippie? Um. Well, I don't. I don't know what the definition of a hippie is mm-hmm. anymore. Uh, yeah, I guess in a lot of ways I am a sort of a modern day hippie in a suit. Um, yeah. If I, yeah, if you if you believe in those paradigms and that makes you makes you a hippie, uh, the fact that you put a, put a suit on doesn't doesn't change that necessarily. Um, and I think it's it's essential that I I do this in a suit. Um, I deal with policymakers, I deal with bankers, uh, I deal with other doctors, and, I, and I've been to drug law reform rallies where I've cringed at the sight of tie dye and dreadlocks and signs saying free the weed. And I remember often thinking, I mean, yeah, you shouldn't have to wear a suit to get your message across. Um, you shouldn't have to. But unfortunately, well, you kind of do. You need to speak the same language of the people whose minds you're trying to change. Yeah, um, totally. The, the tie-dye dreadlocks and free the weed didn't work in the 60s and isn't going to work now. Um, and it doesn't work until, unless you approach it from a much more evidence-based, much more professional angle. Um, so you're, yeah, you're not going to, you're not going to get across to a Thai person speaking Lebanese. So <laughs> why would you do this? Why would you do the same thing in, in, in other, other means of your existence? Yeah. That's a beautiful analogy. Yeah, it was well said. Uh, yeah, I think. Um... I was I was talking to my my parents yesterday about about our travels in Thailand and we live in a more hippie town where there is more dreadlocks and tie dye etc and we were just uh, staying in the big city of Chiang Mai for a bit where um, you know we realize as time goes on how moderate we both are Trevor and I and like that that's kind of terrifying mm. <laughs> that we're pretty moderate <laughs> in the middle of the road but yeah it's <laughs> it's always interesting hanging out with like I don't know more mainstream that we seem more like hippies and when we hang out with hippies yeah. we seem really mainstream and I was oh, yeah. describing yeah. it to my parents yesterday is like the we're the combination of the hippie and the hustle and uh the <laughs> you don't yeah I think whenever those things align those are like those are yeah. all of my my most favorite people and people who like really make serious change are those who, yeah. who are open yeah. to having really broad perspectives and open to having their minds changed and to and therefore are really effective at changing other people's minds on that note mm-hmm. have, how do you feel about michael Pollan's new book <laughs> did you really love it oh the... i do i do I, I was at the um i was at the the book launch in uh in new york oh my gosh um, that's amazing yeah. how was yeah, it yeah 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 I was just, I was, I was really lucky. A friend of mine um, uh, knows his son really well, and I happened to be in New York for a conference at the time, um, and so I went there and I got to meet him and got my book signed. I'm, uh, I'm a fanboy. That's amazing. Um, oh, so, so are we. Yeah, I'm jealous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's, I mean, he's so, he's, he's really charming, um, yes. and uh, such an engaging speaker. And that's, he's, he's the exact archetype 
of the kind of person we need more of. Yeah, um, he's the hippie in the hustle. Things like this. <laughs> he is. He is exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and it helps that he's an um, an old white dude. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's got the he's, gray hair. He's and the he, first he person to hair. make my mom seriously consider taking mushrooms. As me, yeah. me and my brother presenting it to her, she's kind of like, "All right, you kids." And then I was like, "Mom, Michael Vollen has this whole book about how you should do it in your <laughs> midlife." And she's like, "Okay, yeah. Yeah, I'm intrigued." <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if uh, just if you're just as a sort of segue, um, so if. if some, if you're trying to get someone interested in the book, Michael Pollan actually has a, there's an article in the New Yorker that he wrote called The Trip Treatment. That's a sort of five-page uh, New Yorker article, which is a good intro to get someone interested just in case you're trying to get, um, you know, spread that to people. That's um, good tip. Look it up. Yeah. Okay. Good tip, yeah. Put it in the notes. Yeah. We'll, we'll link to it in our show notes. Mm. Our next question is, if there was one behavior or action you could get everyone in the world to do or stop doing, what would it be? Um, microdosing. <laughs> no, it's just you get. If I want to get people to stop doing it, you say. Do or stop doing. One or the other, or both. Yeah, I, I think you'd be believing in objectivity. Okay. Um, that's that's something that I I would love to see change. I'd love to see people realize more the subjectivity of their own realities. Um, again, this feeds back into the psychedelic paradigm that. One of the main things that psychedelics do is to expose you to a version of your own reality that is so different from the reality that you've always known. And when you do that, you have to question, therefore, the objectivity, uh, the, the validity of the idea of objectivity of your own reality. And when you question that, you have to consider then that perhaps all realities are subjective. And when you consider that all realities are subjective, you then become much more aware of the possibility of someone else's reality being considerably different from your reality and therefore the need to take into consideration someone else's reality in any situation. And I think if you did that a lot more, as opposed to believing in this this one true reality, therefore there's one objective worldview, therefore there's one right and wrong, there's one truth and untruth, there's one normal and one abnormal. If we start to do that, um, I think we'll see a disillusion, a lot of the disagreements that we see, uh, a lot of the conflict that we see. I agree completely. I remember reading a article about a study that was done on the like was correlating people's ability to experience empathy with their ability to like spatially take on somebody else's perspective. Yeah, right. Oh. It was very interesting. That's like, cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It speaks to the same it speaks to the same message. Yeah, I get that completely. This might be a similar answer. What is the most annoying thing about people? <laughs> um, oh, God. Single uh, most annoying thing about people. Um, hmm. I'll have to think about that one. Can I come back to that one? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Try to do some parallel thinking while you ask me other things. <laughs> All right, then what is something really popular now, but in five years everyone will look back on and be embarrassed by? Oh, um, uh, that's skate scooters. Scooters? There's skate scooters, there's things that you sort of zoom around on, and um, they look like skateboards with handles, which you're yeah, sort of pushing so yourself along. 
I always look at those things going, do you realize how much of an idiot you look like doing that? <laughs> I find that absurd. We were, well, we went to, we were just in Auckland for a couple of weeks. And have, I'm, have you been to Auckland? Uh, in New Zealand, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes. they're like everywhere there. I mean, it's their bike share equivalent <laughs> of just ever, the it's the big thing. Everyone rides the scooters everywhere yeah. and just abandon them in the middle of the street. I have street. to admit, it was it's kind of yeah. a fantastic idea. Like I mean, it's a little dangerous because they're 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 powered, they're electric powered and Oh, these are the electric powered ones. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I was mean... talking about the ones where you're sort of like shoving your foot along <laughs> the whole way. Uh-huh. Yeah, the, yeah, that's a little ones, bit more but... silly for sure. Yeah. But the, I mean, the, the, ah, right. the company's kind of great. I mean, you could you just pick it up wherever. You can see on your GPS where the closest one is. You go, you grab it, you drive it to wherever you want it, and you just leave it there, which presents its own sort of problems. But mm. I was like, it's really convenient, and I'm sure it's probably good for the environment on some level. On <laughs> some level. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite thing about yourself? Uh, I question everything. It's a beautiful um, answer. I think, yeah. The only thing I... So Socrates was the smartest man in the world because he knew that he knew nothing. Hmm. Um, and, I mean, that's a, that's a sort of very reductionist way of looking at all Socrates' <laughs> philosophy. But, um, but, he, but he knew that he knew nothing. And the more you know, the more you realize how little you know. That should be the way, as opposed to the more you know, the more you realize you know. If you're doing that, then you obviously don't know enough um, because you, you, you need to know more to realize just how much gaps there are in your own knowledge. And that should lead you to a point of realizing how little you know and therefore questioning absolutely everything. And I think that's something that, that, that guides me uh, in most things that I do. Um, I can certainly yeah, see his everything. influence in this conversation. Like the man oh, yeah. <laughs> Not very well hidden, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is a compliment, though, by by all means. <laughs> Thank you. It's good to be compared to Sock. Uh, what is your most embarrassing story before age 10? Oh, most embarrassing. Oh, that's quite a few for the age of 10. I mean, uh, for for the l- longest time in my life, I might, you know, people wanted to be um, astronauts or pilots or soldiers or my my earliest memory of um, ambition um, was that I wanted to be the guy who drove the garbage truck mm-hmm. fir- firmly so not the, not, not the guy who was running behind the garbage truck throwing in I was wanted to be the guy who drove the garbage truck and I told everyone um, and I think back on it now and I wish why, why why did I why did I go I'm telling everyone but I, I love I love that garbage truck with yellow light on the on the top of it going around and I used to run out every day and stand at the gates watching it and I'm pretty sure my mom at some point must have been somewhat concerned either one because of my what my career aspirations would be uh, and two about my actual cognitive capacity if I was that fascinated that easily by big blue truck with a yellow light for years for absolutely years um <laughs> anyway the first thing that comes to mind at this point i'm sure there, i'm sure there are far more Aww. yeah that's really cute <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, uh, nephews that like all large trucks not just garbage trucks but anything that's large <laughs> and goes forward and yeah. backward and can move <laughs> fascinated yeah. by yeah, it's amazing the plethora of children's books there are on the subject of big trucks that go forward and back. Trucks, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Not many on garbage trucks, though. So. <laughs> yeah. No, I have, have a... to be the most glamorous yeah. option. No? One of my favorite really? books when I was a kid, I can't remember the title, but it was by Lewis Sacker, who is the author most famously of Holes, the children's book. I, I can't remember it, but it was like a girl a girl genius. She was born a genius. Her first word was octopus, and her dad was a garbage truck driver, and she thought that he that was the most glamorous job in the world and that he was the very best dad, and I always – I, I still remember this book very firmly that I haven't read since I was, yeah. you know, around eight years old. So, um, on that note, what is the book that has most influenced your life? Um, oh. the uh, I don't want to sound like too much of a wanker, but and I, I actually haven't read all of it, but the the Bhagavad Gita, um, and it's something that sits by my uh, my bedside and I pick it up and read little excerpts from it and different parts of it. Um, have you heard of it, the, the Gita? Yeah. I have not. Yes, yeah. you, yes, you have. He, you, we, I think we were, well, we read Eat, Pray, Love when we very first started our travels. <laughs> and right. she, so I mean, I'd, I'd heard of it. But, yeah, really. Uh, I'd heard of it before that, but um, I don't remember exactly what Elizabeth Gilbert's description right. of it is. But then Trevor was like, okay. this sounds awesome. We got to read that. We put it on oh, our reading yes. list. Yes, yes, I do recall that. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the Bhagavad Gita is a section of the Mahabharata. The Mahabharata is one of two great Hindu epics the Ramayana and the Mahabharata the Mahabharata is technically the world's longest poem the entire the entire uh, epic is a poem and one section of it is called the Bhagavad Gita and it's uh, I mean it's, an, it's allegorical but um, it's, it's, it's based on a, a battle scene uh, where the Lord Krishna um, is acts as a charioteer towards the, the main protagonist Arjuna and he steps down from his chariot and delivers this sort of sermon. It's entirely unrealistic that there's this raging battle going on and there's time for the, the, the Lord masquerading his chariot to deliver this long sermon. But that sermon is the Bhagavad Gita and it's been translated um, multiple times and you can get various different uh, versions of it. The one by Iknath Isvaran is the one I like the best. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's a philosophical study. Um, and the the teachings from it are profound and are, are the cornerstone uh, of a lot of Hindu teachings or the cornerstone of a lot of Buddhist teachings. Um, and it's very perspective shifting. Um, and again, ties in, I mean, a lot of my worlds collide naturally and ties in very much into a lot of psychedelic philosophy. Um, a lot of Hindu philosophy, a lot of psychedelic philosophy uh, are very are not too dissimilar, really, uh, in the things they speak of. And um, yeah, for me, the Bhagavad Gita is a, quite a good grounding tome, and it's something heavy as it is. It's something that I can almost flick into at any point and read a couple of pages off, um, get a little bit of peace, and, and close it again. Have you heard the theory that one of the reasons why the Hindus revere cows is that I was just the, about to go there. <laughs> the of the psychedelic the, the mushrooms dung, that grow out of the dung that grow out of the dung? Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't think that's why. The the <laughs> well, I mean, maybe perhaps it is, but at least the uh, the. The, the party line has always been because the cow provides everything, right? With the cow, you're, the dung is used for fertilizer. It's used as fuel. The, the, the milk's used for uh, babies drink the milk and adults drink the milk. The, the cow is then used to plow the fields. It's, uh, a cow is like a, the ultimate uh, multi-purpose. Um, I'm thinking of those pen knives that you flick out that can do everything, but that's, that's what the cow always was. <laughs> 
but that's that's the party line. But um, yeah, sure, let's throw mushrooms into that mix too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was gonna say it's not necessarily in opposition. To... No, 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 no. And I mean, the it's not that unrealistic. The the, the again, harking back to an old older message of mine is that um, the humans have engaged with psychedelics throughout history. They're for one, they're everywhere. They're absolutely everywhere. There are mushrooms in your front yard. Um, your psychedelics are in the, the bark of the acacia tree. They're in multiple different cacti. Um, 5-MeO DMT comes from the back of a toad. Um, you'll have uh, deadly nightshade. You've got, I, I, can, I can just keep listing the different types of plants and animals in nature that sort of provide you with means to access the psychedelic world. These things are everywhere. They've been placed there for a reason. They've continued to exist for a reason. And if you look back in history, they've been used in everything from religious sacrament to um, initiation rituals to um, sort of individual explorations, coming of age rituals. They've always been used. And the idea that a lot of religion has come from some sort of psychedelic experience or the other way around, that it's been used in some sort of religious experience, um, the idea perhaps that some of the visualizations that we associate with religion may stem from um, psychedelic visions are probably not that much of a stretch. So, yeah, let's throw the mushrooms into that cow mix. <laughs> yeah. All right. What life practices do you do to keep yourself sane and balanced? Ah, right. Um, probably not enough, I think. Um <laughs> It's the, it's the blunt truth at the moment, which is where my lifestyle is. Um, uh, I think for me, the variety is what keeps me sane. Um, you know, I still practice in psychiatry because um, it keeps me sane compared to the nuttiness of what the cryptocurrency world brings to me, um, which is a very sort of counterintuitive construct. Um, but that that sort of that variety definitely keeps me engaged, interested and excited for the other third of the Venn diagram, put it that way. Um, that's one. Um, uh, exercise um, is quite important for me uh, in various different forms. And I dance a lot. Um, there's, no, there's nothing like, yeah, nothing like a night where I've completely exhausted myself uh, and I can barely move my legs um, to make me glow the next day. I couldn't agree more heartily. Yeah, fantastic yeah. answer. <laughs> uh, what is the most environmentally friendly thing you do and or the main environmentally friendly thing you want others to do? Um, oh. Drive less. Um, drive less and walk more. It's probably the one I do most of. Um, I've... I've definitely started uh, using transport much less um but not scooters the, the, <laughs> not scooters that's right um the one i don't know if it's one i'd like other people to do it's one I, i'd like to do more is that i'd like to be better at recycling um i i don't i think a lot of us don't actually know how to recycle properly um and we either as a result we either don't recycle enough or um, we don't recycle in the appropriate manner. And I know I've been guilty until I've been slow, slowly trying to refine my practices of throwing things into the recycle bin that I now know should not have been in the recycling bin. Um, and uh, I wish there was more education on that. And um, I, I wish people took the initiative to learn to recycle uh, more and better. 
I think it's a great answer. That's only become even more complicated now that China has stopped taking a lot of the world's recycling. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, rules exactly. have gotten much more strict. And mm-hmm. uh, I admit, I'm not even sure. I'm because it, it, it varies by every district. I mean, it varies by who's collecting your recycling, yeah. what the rules are. So yeah, yeah to put yeah. information out there has to be so individualized. And also, yeah, I mean, I my main day job, whatever, is generally. Um, doing different graphic design and marketing for environmentally friendly companies and issues and it's kind of like you know I've done a lot uh, to try to educate about yeah proper waste disposal and it's like how do you how do you get that in front of people's eyes I mean I've tried all these different methods of like internet marketing having up different posters at facilities to inform people but how do you even get them to pay any attention when it's right in front of their faces i've worked at a whole bunch of Mm -hmm. events like festivals and other stuff being standing by the trash as a either an informant or just the person to take your stuff and and put it in the correct bins if you're too lazy but if anyone's willing to listen to me about what is compostable (laughs) then like i feel like that's probably the most effective thing to actually stand in front of somebody and be like this is what composting is but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, you can, you it's can read hard. all the recycling information you want, but it's not the same as having actually someone point that out to you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I wish you'd come stand by my recycling bin. It helped me a lot. <laughs> all right. Yes. Next time yeah. I'm in Australia, I'll stop by. That's right. You got a job. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> uh, so why do you think people do small talk? Mm. Um, I, I think it does. It does ease that. It does ease the trans. It trans- yeah, it does ease the transition of conversation. Um, and I don't know if that's always been the case. I don't know if we've always done small talk, but I feel like you've become- really deliberately put yourself into a variety of fields where small talk is way less prevalent. I mean, yeah, therapy, uh, tech world. These are all places where either it would be inappropriate to have small talk, or just attracts the type of people who aren't willing to engage in How that. Much- yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but we've we've become an increasingly uh, passive aggressive society, I think. Um, like non confrontational, but without um, uh, it being attached to an, an actual underlying attitude of non confrontationalness. Um, and small talk becomes just another accessory um, in that larger game. Um, yeah, I think that's the best answer we've heard so far. Yeah, I think that might be certainly a new perspective on it. I like that. I'll have to digest that a little. Sweet. I'll shut up before I screw it up. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Did you come up with what the most annoying thing about people is? (laughs) Yeah, I think think so. Um, uh, I think it's a lack of the the, the bit that gets me the most is is that people seem to have such a lack of curiosity, or a lot of people seem to have a lack of curiosity and that always befuddles me like why you would not have more curiosity about things and people who are just uh happy to not know things or would prefer to not know things oh no i don't need to know about that oh, i don't want to know about that or uh no no i'm happy i'm happy with the way i'm happy the way i am i'm happy the way i am is um yeah i guess i guess i guess maybe that's my curse that uh i'm never content with the way I am but um, I wish that people were more curious and were less just happy the way they are perhaps because I think that it would one drive the world forward 
um, at a much more positive rate, but equally also allow us to understand each other a lot better if we were just a little more curious. I think I'm generally there happy with the way I am, but always seeking to improve and constantly curious. Yeah. And I don't think those that. are in competition with one another. You can be true. Yeah, they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah, yeah. it does seem like yeah. our, our, at least in the states, that our education system does pretty much all it can to stamp out any element of creativity <laughs> that mm-hmm. you might actually have. Yeah, creativity better. don't train lemmings. <laughs> Doesn't train good lemmings. Yes. No. Amen. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Yeah. No, it's truly a pleasure. I have so many more questions, but yeah, it's bad. We're approaching an hour and a half, and I know your time. Oh, is right. Gone. Okay. I know wow. You're an incredibly busy man. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't really realize that. Thank yeah. you so much for taking the time to speak with us. No, my pleasure. It's been a great conversation. Um, so where can people find you and anything that you want to recommend yeah. to them? Absolutely. Um, I guess the easiest way is to look us up through the brokerage. Um, maybe I'll give you a link to um, the uh, the brokerage website, which is Caleb and Brown, um, www.calebandbrown.com. Um, you can reach me through that. You can reach the brokerage through that. We're based in Australia, but um, our clients are sort of scattered all over the world. We have a global reach. So I think about half our clients are international uh, and half our clients are Australian. So, um, yeah, you can reach me personally. Um, do you have anywhere uh, that says that. all the places you're going to be speaking? Because I know you do a great deal of public speaking. I do. Um, I mean, that could be off my LinkedIn. So it'd be LinkedIn slash Dr. Prash. Um, you can happy for you to link my LinkedIn on that as well. Um, and that usually has where my next talk is going to be. So the, the next place I'm speaking at is Anarchapulco. Let's just finish on that one. Have you heard of Anarchapulco? No. Thanks. Ah, oh, fascinating. So it's uh, it's a conference in Acapulco in Mexico, and it's called Anarcapulco, and it's the biggest collection of uh, anarchists um, from around the world. So nice. cryptocurrency <laughs> people, uh, human rights people, drug law reform people, gender and sexuality oh God, um, activists. Um, yeah, uh, and it's going to be 3,000 delegates um, attending this year. Wow. All locked Jeez. into one hotel. Um, <laughs> that's where the conference is. That's where you stay. That's where the parties are. It will be. Um, I am looking forward to having my mind bent. Yeah, that sounds like one of the most amazing conferences yeah. I could ever conceive of. Yeah, yeah. So that's I, next I leave week. next week. Wow. Uh, well, I leave next week to Mexico. Um, and but the, the conference itself is on the fourteenth, I think, of fourteenth uh, of February. Oh, it's then goes that's on for the day days. the podcast premieres so spread oh, the really? world, yeah, yeah, spread, the word. word. spread the word <laughs> I tell, we'll send I you tell. some stickers yeah, I'll, um, <laughs> I'll put it out there awesome do. <laughs> well uh yeah let us know uh if you ever make it up to this part of thailand we'll take you out for a mushroom shake and um, yeah please i remember that yeah <laughs> pie was it pie yeah P-A-I. i'm gonna go look it up now p-a-i noted yeah <laughs> Radio. Ben, Trevor, thank you very much. Ben, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. All right. See you, folks. Bye bye.